close to the end of uh, our study in Soldiers of the Cross. I'm going to back up into chapter 2 for a little bit, and then we're going to come and get to the end of chapter 3 before we're through uh, tonight. And I want to give you some examples. Uh, I I studied history when I was in college, and I still love history. I have a lot of books on history, either on my Kindle or in my library, and I love to study the leaders of history and the great moments of history, and particularly military history. Uh, I always love to study that. I remember being in Edinburgh, Scotland, and Colin Peckham taking us out to a point in Edinburgh where uh, Lord Nelson had once stood, and there was a huge group of ships that were heading in to do battle, and one of the men with Lord Nelson turned to him and said, Sir, we're outnumbered and outgunned. Ships are coming in from all over the ocean. We must retreat and fight another day. What you may not know about Lord Nelson was he was blind in one eye. Now, some historians say that he had lost an eye. He actually had not lost it. He was just blind in one eye. And he took the scope and put it up to his blind eye and said, what ships? The Battle of Trafalgar, where he ultimately lost his life, but saved Britain from the invasion of Napoleon, he made a great statement. As he was giving his final orders, he said, England expects that every man will do his duty. And isn't that what God expects of us? That in the battle, every person does their duty, what they're called to do. Churchill, after the fall of France, said, We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, landing grounds, in the fields, in streets, and on the streets. We shall never surrender. Captain James Lawrence of the U.S. frigate Chesapeake, after being mortally wounded, was carried below deck and spoke these words, Tell the men to fire faster and don't give up the ship. There was a lieutenant on the heavy cruiser USS New Orleans after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and he gave what is now one of the most famous statements in all of naval history, in fact, became a song that was put into a Hollywood movie a few years later, when as the Japanese were coming and he was on the deck of that ship under heavy attack, he said these famous words, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. We're in a battle, and that battle requires us to be good soldiers of the cross, not to whine and complain when we're in a battle. We should not be surprised that we're in a battle. Uh, If we are making headway as the body of Christ, if you are making headway as a believer in the Lord Jesus, you're going to be in a battle. The only people the devil doesn't bother are people who are not bothering him. Now, that's just a fact. If the devil's not bothering you, it's because you're not causing him any trouble. If you don't sense that he's plotting to bother you, you're not aware and you may be ignorant of his devices. And so I want us to look at three things tonight. First of all, to remember to have God's perspective. And I want you to back up, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. To remember 
to have God's perspective because when you're in a battle, you need perspective. I'm, I'm reading Bill O'Reilly's book right now on the assassination of Lincoln. It's a phenomenal book and a very well-written book about the last days of the war between the states and, and uh, the attitudes and the mentalities of Grant and Lincoln and Lee as they were approaching those last days and trying to, and the perspective of those different men and how they were viewing the events of those days. Paul is in the last days. He's about to be beheaded. And he comes to chapter 2 and verse 8. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Now that little word remember there in verse 8 means remember or keep on remembering. Don't forget. Don't let it get off your radar. Don't lose sight of this. Paul expects Timothy to not only remember what he has gone through, but he expects Timothy to have a firsthand knowledge of what it means to endure what it means to fight a battle, to go through a battle. And here's what he tells him to remember. He's a descendant of David and raised from the dead. What he's saying to Timothy in those two phrases is that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Remember that you are serving one who is fully man, descended from David, and fully God, raised from the dead. Now, if you want to write there by that verse, Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, as a soldier, if we're going to have God's perspective, we need to remember this, that God's perspective is that there's no debate, no discussion, no vote on who Jesus is. He is who he said he is. Now, that will make some people mad. Do you agree with that? That will make some people mad. They don't want to hear that Jesus is the only way. They don't want to hear that Jesus is the Son of God. That will make some religions mad, very religious people mad. But here's, here's why we have to stick to that gospel message. First of all, Paul angered the Jews, but many Jews came to Christ because he would not back down from saying he was the Messiah. Every town Paul went to, he went first to the synagogue, where he knew that it was only a matter of time before he'd get beaten up or kicked out. So Paul said, I'm going to go tell the Jews that he's the Messiah. Even if they don't want to hear it, I'm still going to tell it to them. He wasn't trying to be offensive. He was trying to tell them the truth about who Jesus is, not just another teacher, not just another prophet. Not only that, Paul angered the Romans who worshiped the emperor as God, but some in the household of Caesar came to Christ. And so if Paul had said, you know, I just don't want to get in trouble with the government. I just don't want the Roman soldiers bearing down on me because... You know, I know what happened when Rome got involved in the crucifixion of Jesus, and the last thing I want to do is to go against the Roman government. But the Romans worshiped the emperor as God, but Paul said, I'm going to tell them who the real God is. And because 
He had the boldness and the courage to do that. People in the very household of Caesar, who is a godless man and a reprobate, had come to Christ. Paul angered the Gentiles when he said that Jesus was human, yet still many came to Christ. He made the Gnostics mad. He made a lot of people mad. By the way, anybody that preaches and teaches the Word of God is going to make somebody mad. You all right with that? I mean, somebody's not going to like it. Now, what they like is somebody that tells them what they want to hear. They just kind of adjust, oh, well, you don't believe that? Well, neither do I. And, and change their message from one crowd to another. But Paul stayed with Jesus Christ. And in verses 11 through 13, he, he pauses here and before he moves on to remind us that the ministry is tough. He says, if you're going to walk with God, if you're going to be a soldier of the cross, you need to understand that there are going to be battles that you're going to be involved in. John Stott said he, being Jesus, envisioned that, the, that there would be both in the world living among godless people and at the same time not of the world living a godly life in Christ. Those who are in Christ but not in the world are not persecuted. Why are they not persecuted? Because they do not come in contact and therefore into collision with their potential persecutors. In other words, they think that we're holy by crawling in a hole. Or as Vance Havner used to say, the mystics were mistakes. They thought you separate from the world. Jesus said we're in the world, but we're not of it. Stott went on to say, those who are in the world but not in Christ are also not persecuted because the world sees nothing in them to persecute. The former escape persecution by withdrawal from the world, the latter by assimilation into the world. It is only those who are both in the world and in Christ simultaneously that persecution becomes inevitable. And so in verse 11, for if we died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That word endure is not a passive word. It is an active word of patient endurance in the midst of a strong battle. He says, if we deny him, and, and denial can take a number of forms. Let me just give you some ways that we can deny him. Well, Peter denied him in Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22. But that denial was not deadly for Peter. It was extremely embarrassing for him. Our compromised lives are a denial of him. You see, every time we compromise, we deny what Jesus has done for us. Denial is not just saying, I don't know who he is, I don't know anything about him. But a compromised life and a justification of a compromised life is a denial of him. There's another one. Not living by biblical principles is a form of denial. Not living by biblical principles is a form of denial. God has given us a manual instructions and told us how to live. 
Now, this is just a broad one. Thank God we don't have this in our church. But power brokers in the church are denial that it's his church. I can't tell you how many pastors I've dealt with that they've been told by the deacons it's their church. Really? Where's that in the Bible? By the way, it's not my church either. It's his church. And you start messing with his church, you're boxing with somebody you can't beat. I mean, it is his church. I start trying to mess with the church of Jesus Christ, and I guarantee you, he can take me out and put me down real quick. Any of us start thinking it's our church, and we get a right to do whatever we want to do, and say whatever we want to say, and act however we want to act, God knows how to get our attention. He is perfectly capable of doing that. And one of the reasons we don't have revival in America is we got people with too much time and too many agendas that are not praying and all they're doing is fighting. And they're fighting the wrong war. And they're shooting their own. Just a little side comment. Arrogance and pride is a denial that we are called to be servants. He says if we deny him, he says if we are faithless. Now this word faithless is used in the New Testament to mean both not, not believing and a betrayal of trust. So faithless is not just, well, they don't believe. It's also a betrayal of the trust or something that's been entrusted to you. So to be faithless is to not be faithful to the gospel that has been entrusted to us by Jesus Christ. You see this all through the New Testament. Luke chapter 9 and verse 24, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, I'm just going to stop right there. You know the rest of this verse. I'm just going to tell you something. The battle you fight and the battle I fight every day is that part of that verse. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because the I in me still wants its way. Is that ever a problem with any of you? I mean, the I in me wants my way. The I in me, you know, uh, just, let's just be honest. The I in me wants to get even. The I in me wants to, well. <laughs> well, by the way, the I in you wants to do the same thing. And so every day we have to get up and choose to die to I. Because when we don't die to the I in us, the I in us is what brings us to the altar to have to repent because I got in control and I did something I shouldn't have done, said something I shouldn't have said, acted like I shouldn't have acted, which brings me and requires and demands that I come to an altar because I decided to live like I wanted to live. One more verse, Matthew 10, 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men... I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Total slap at the me first mentality. Secondly, remember to stand on God's word. Now jump to chapter 3. Jump to chapter 3 and verse 10. Remember to stand on God's word. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy and verse 10. Now you followed my teaching. He's talking to Timothy, but he's really talking to all of us too. You followed my teaching, 
conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Now he's writing this knowing the Lord's not going to rescue him out of this one. I and indeed all, not some, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now we're going to talk about what that being deceived means in just a moment. You, however, in other words, Timothy, don't fall into these traps. Don't get snookered. Don't get captured. Don't become a spiritual prisoner of war. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing that from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. I just want to say a quick word here. One of the reasons I survived liberal teachers at a Baptist seminary in the 70s was because of the things I had learned from childhood. I didn't go to college and to seminary and all of a sudden say, these people are enlightened. They know so much more. All of my little Sunday school teachers that taught me in third and four-year-old and fourth grade and in high school, they were just dumb old laymen. These people have got... PhDs behind her name. Well, a FUD is a FUD, whichever way you want to do it. But I knew because I had been taught the scriptures from childhood, when I heard something that went against the scriptures, something in my spirit rose up and there was a check said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. And so I could study it and evaluate it and think about it and, and dig into it to see. It made me dig into the word. It did not make me question the word. It made me dig into the word. Why? Because somebody from childhood, if you don't think it's important that we teach children and young people the word of God and that we have youth camps and Bible school and disciple nows, I want to tell you it's part of what helps them survive when they go to a university that says all that stuff you heard in church is just a bunch of people that don't have any brains. Well, can I just tell you, all of those folks have a right to be wrong. And one day, maybe God will give us just one second in heaven when we can stand and look over the edge, down into the abyss, and go, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> Told you we were right. <laughs> See, because all of that teaching comes from the pit. And Paul says there are going to be people that are going to deceive and by the way, there are people that stand in pulpits that deceive and are being deceived. You, however, don't need to fall into that trap. Look at verse 10 through 13. In verses 10 through 13, he deals with Timothy's past loyalty. He said, man, you've been there with me, Timothy. You've been a friend. You've been a co-worker and a co-laborer. But in verses 14 through 17, he urges him to remain loyal. In other words, what Paul is saying, Timothy, when I'm gone, don't quit. When I'm off this scene, don't make me have to come back and, and get you. Don't quit. You remain loyal. You see, you're not just loyal because somebody's watching you. 
A good soldier is loyal when nobody's watching. Verse 14, continue. The word means to dwell or to permanently settle down in. Continue, he says, in the things you've learned and become convinced of. Settle down in them. Now then Paul uses four expressions to characterize the growing ungodliness. Let's look at them. First of all, he talks about evil men. Now, evil men are not just evil by intent. They are evil by nature. That's important. It's not just that their intent is to be evil. It's that their nature is evil. These evil men are going to rise up. Then he talks about imposters. An imposter is a word that originally referred to a magician or a sorcerer who made you believe that something was there or not there that was or was not. Somebody was smoking mirrors, magic tricks. Then he talks about deceiving. These are people that deliberately set out to fool people, to get people off track, to get them away from the gospel, and it's usually for their personal gain. Those who deceive never deceive because they're servants. They deceive because they're self-centered and they want something out of you. But here's the phrase that I want you to look at. They are deceived, deceiving, and being deceived. Now, you need to make note of this because this needs to pop off of this page to you. These people that are deceiving know that they are lying to people, but what they don't know is that they are themselves being deceived by Satan. That is extremely important for you to get in that verse. They know they're selling a sham. What they don't know is what's motivating them is the devil of hell. He has blinded their eyes and closed their ears so that they cannot see and do not know and will not hear the truth because they are instruments and tools of the enemy of Christ. He has blinded their minds to the truth. And so Paul warns and forewarns Timothy, there are going to be people that you're going to meet. You've already met some. There are going to be others that are going to come down the road, and they are deceiving, and they are being deceived. So when you see one of them, don't say, boy, that poor person, they just don't understand. No, they're deceiving. They know they're doing it, and they are being deceived. 2 John verse 9, let me just read it to you. 2 John verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his deeds. You got it? 2 John 9 and verse 11. Now, let me give a contemporary example of that very quickly. People will walk up to your door and they will offer you a magazine or a book. They are deceiving 
and being deceived. And the reason they're deceiving is because they've been deceived. And because they've been deceived, they keep deceiving. And you can sit there and say, let me get Josh McDowell's more than a carpenter out and show it to you. Satan's already closed them off to that. There's a wall between you and them that only the Holy Spirit of God can break. Here's what Warren Wiersbe said. I asked him about this. He said, we must not even say goodbye when they leave because goodbye is a reference to God be with you. Now that's how strong John and Paul are about listening to people from cults. Wiersbe said, you don't even say goodbye to them because that's implying that you want God to be with them. Here's why John didn't want them to do. He didn't want them to do three things, and they're not going to come up on the screen, but I want you to get it. John did not want to give a false teacher the impression that his false teaching was accepted. He didn't want to give a false teacher the impression that his false teaching was accepted. You know, you sit there and you smile and you say, you know, you say, well, I just need to be kind and I need to show them the love of Jesus. It won't matter until God breaks their blinded hearts and minds. And there have been a lot of other people before you that have tried to do that. So you just have to close the door and not answer it. The one time we did open the door was we were living in, on uh, Trowbridge and this lady came to the door and she had a seven-year-old with her and the seven-year-old was uh, ca- carrying all the material. And my wife, now staff wives know my wife, my wife is not, she's not an out front person. And, and I just happened to open a door. I don't know why I did, but I did. I just happened to open a door and my wife saw this little seven-year-old, eight-year-old girl with her. And my wife said, I'll handle this one. And she moved me out of the way And she said, how dare you lead your child into deception to make her carry a magazine she can't even read to teach something that's not the truth. How dare you do that to your child? You know what that lady did? She turned around and got out of there. (laughs) I gave my wife a high five. (laughs) You go, gal. Send you out on the SWAT team. (laughs) Secondly, you can become infected because of association. You can become infected because of association. But here's the big one. And I asked uh, Dr. Wearsby about this, and he affirmed it. You give the false teacher ammunition to use at the next house. Here's what happens. They come to your house, and you sit there and talk to them for five minutes, and they go next door to your lost neighbors, to your lost neighbors. And they say, I was just having this conversation with Ray and Cheryl Morris next door. They're such a nice couple. And, you know, they, they love God, and I love God. They've just used you as a believer in Jesus Christ to get into the door and to condemn a person to hell under false teaching. Are you with me? I know this is not fun. (laughs) You know, I'm not handing out lollipops at the end of this message. I mean, I know this is not fun. But what they do is they use you. Can you imagine if I invited some of those folks into my house 
And we sat down. And I said, you know what? I've done enough study in apologetics. I can handle this bird. And we sat down for an hour. I got lost people on this side of me. I got lost people on that side of me. I got lost people all up and down my street. You know what they'll do? They'll sit there and listen. They'll say, well, how about we come back later? And then they'll bring somebody else with them that knows more than they know. How about we come back later? But before they ever come back later, they've gone to everybody on my street and said, you know, Pastor Sherwood, we had a lovely visit. Implying that I, I agree with them or I condone what they're doing. So Paul says and John says, don't even let them in the door. That sounds harsh in our we want to be nice to everybody world, but I want to tell you something, folks. If that person was selling poison and you had a child that didn't know how to read a label, you wouldn't let them in the door. By the way, they're selling poison. They're selling poison. And you got to be careful. The false teachers in John's day used two words, knowledge and unction. And they claimed a special unction or anointing that gave them special knowledge. 1 John 2.24, as for you... Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you hear from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. Last thing, remember to carry your weapon. Verse 16. To the greatest verses in the Scripture, as if there are any that are greater than others, but these are great ones. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that, why is the word given? Verse 17. So that the man of God, and I would even say the woman of God, the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, I got two illustrations that weren't in my sermon at four o'clock today. But I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and when he told him, I made him repeat them to me so I could write them down. So I'm going to have to refer to my notes a little bit. When the Soviet Empire began to crumble and disintegrate, and we began to send people into the former Soviet Union to distribute Bibles, there are a group of college students that went in, and they went to a place in Russia called Stav Stavropo. Is that, does that even sound right? It's a, it's a town. Does that sound okay to you? Sounds good to Jim. He's been to Russia, so I'll just ask him. They went in, they started handing out Bibles, and there was an old man sitting there, and they handed him a Bible, and he looked at it, and he said, when I was a young man, I was in the army, and he said, the government sent us around to collect these books and to put them away, and he said, we put them in a warehouse outside of town, and I think they're still there. And they said, could you show us where that warehouse is? So these students went with this old man. They went to the warehouse. They met the man who was running the warehouse. He said, oh, yes, I know what you're talking about. And they went back to the back, and in the back, stacked high as you could see, were boxes and boxes and boxes of Bibles that had been collected when the communists took over. Now, here's the good part of the story. These students asked if they could have the Bibles. He said, fine with me, freeze up my warehouse. And so they took Bibles that had been collected 60 years before and started handing them out. Well, they needed some help, and so they went out on the street and they found some Russian college students, atheists. And they said, could you help us move some boxes? 
And so they said, sure. So this one college student came and he picked up a box and he opened it up and he's griping and complaining the whole time. Why do you care about these? These books have no meaning. These books have no value. I've heard about this book. It's all full of propaganda. It's for weak people. And he's just going on and on and on about the Bible. They break for lunch. When they break for lunch, this guy disappears. They go around the corner to find him. And he's sitting around the corner. Now, this is good, folks. <laughs> he's sitting around the corner with a Bible in his hand, and he's weeping. And these students look at him and say, what's wrong? He said, this book, this book. And they said, did you read it? He said, no, I haven't read any of it. They said, well, why are you weeping? He said, because I opened it to the first page and it was my grandmother's Bible. And she was the greatest person I had ever known. Don't tell me God doesn't know how to get the word to people. Here's a Bible that's been in a box for 60 years in storage. A guy just is recruited to give some arm strength. He sits down. The one Bible he pulls out belongs to his grandmother, has her signature in the front of it, and he comes to Christ. That's the power of the gospel. That's all scriptures inspired by God. And by the way, all scripture and your grandmother's name. <laughs> Why does Paul say these are important? First of all, because where the Bible comes from, where the Bible comes from. All Scripture is inspired by God. I love what J.B. Phillips said when he was translating his paraphrase of the New Testament. He said, translating the New Testament was like rewiring a house with a power on. Handling God's Word because of where it comes from. Uh, let me just give you a couple of thoughts here before I go to the next one. Uh, this won't come up on the slide. Because of where it comes from, there, there are two things here. First of all, it's God's book. It's God's book in essence and in its entirety. It doesn't contain God's book. It is God's book. It's God's book in essence and in entirety. From the first word of Genesis to the last word of Revelation, and I'm not so sure it doesn't even include the maps, it's God's Word. Because if we get to decide where it's God's Word and where it's not, none of it is God's Word. It's God's Word in its essence and it's an entirety. And it's a good book. Not only is it God's book, it's a good book. And it's a good book for two reasons. Because of its approach and because of its aim. The approach is God told us a story about how much he loved us and how much he hates sin. That's his approach. His approach wasn't trying to prop up how we feel about ourselves. His approach was to say, you're a sinner and you deserve judgment and hell, but I loved you enough to give my life for you and to send my son to die for you. So where it came from, but not only where it came from, but what it's intended to do, it is profitable Profitable, valuable, useful, beneficial. Back when he was a missionary in uh, Africa, Tom Eliff went into a gold mine in Africa. He went a mile deep into that gold mine. 
And he said, there in that gold mine with all the noise and all the, the vents to get air out and to put air in and the machinery moving around and just the loud sound and all these men down a mile down in the earth and you could have gone deeper. He said, they were in this gold mine mining a stream of gold the width of his little finger. That's all there was in that mine was a stream of gold the width of his little finger. And he said, Michael, God says that his word is more precious than gold. How deeply are you digging into it? If people will go that far and work that hard for a stream of gold the width of a little finger, how much more should we take time to dig into the Word of God to see the riches that are contained on the pages of God's Word? Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It's profitable for teaching. That word is used 15 times in the pastoral epistles, and it affirms the responsibility and the importance of us teaching the Word of God. For reproof, the word reproof simply means the act of admonishing a believer who has strayed from the Word. The act of admonishing a believer who has strayed from the Word. What we want to do is we want to say, oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. If they've strayed from the Word, they need to be rebuked. You know, I mean, if your child, if you had a four-year-old child and they kept walking out in front of a car, you wouldn't sit there and say, oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. You'd snatch them by their arm, risk taking their shoulder out of the socket to make sure that they didn't do something that would take them further into harm. And yet sometimes in the church of Jesus Christ, we turn our head to sin and we say, oh, that's not a big deal. Reproof is to admonish correction, showing the person how to get back on track. You see, it's not enough to admonish. I mean, anybody can admonish, but here's how you got off track. Here's how you get back on track. To correct, to get them on the right track, on the right road. It, the word means to lift someone back on their feet. You see, the goal of the church is not to reprove and just stomp somebody to death. It's to reprove and say, now, you want some help getting back on your feet? That's what we're here for. And you help them get back on their feet. To reprove, to correct, for training in righteousness, which is how you stay on track after you get back on track. For training, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Bishop Hanley Mole said, personal attention to the very words of Holy Scripture in the spirit of obedience and prayer was never more needed in the Christian church than now. And to that, I would say amen. Preacher Halleck used to say this. If you master the Bible, the Bible will master you. 
If you master the Bible, the Bible will master you. Well, how does that work? It works really simply. Because when the Word of God gets in our heads and gets in our hearts and we start to get off track, we will get back on track before somebody has to reprove us because the Word of God will come to mind and will quicken our heart and the Holy Spirit will use what we've studied to remind us. You don't want to go there. You just don't want to go there. This story and then I'm through. At the end of World War II, when we were rebuilding the very nations we had destroyed and winning the war in Europe, there was a Berlin crisis. West Berlin was starving, and we were trying to figure out a way to get supplies into Berlin. And to get supplies into West Berlin, our military had to fly a very narrow corridor to get those supplies in because every plane was at risk of being shot down. And so to fly that narrow corridor, they literally had to fly in, not spread out like in a bombing pattern, but they had to fly in this narrow corridor so close together that the nose of one plane would almost be touching the tail of the plane in front of it. They just had to fly in a straight line down a narrow corridor, and to get off of that corridor was to risk being shot down. While they were bringing tons and tons of supplies to hungry and starving people in West Berlin. The way that our military figured out to do that was they sent a radio beam down this, let's just say this center aisle is it. They sent a radio beam right down the middle of that corridor and what the planes knew to do at that time was to lock in on that radio signal and to fly right down that steady radio signal. Now, on each side of that, they were doing other things. On, on the left side, they were like sending out a radio signal uh, spasmodically. It would just go dot, 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 dot. And on this side, they were sending long, uninterrupted signals, but they were differentiated so that the pilots of the airplane would know, if I stay on this corridor, I'm in the frame and in the window and on the plane that I need to be on to get these supplies in to get my plane in safely. Now, once the enemy figured out what we were doing, here's what they did. The enemy would fly above the corridor and they would drop pieces of tin and tin foil down over the corridor. And when you do that, it disrupts a radio signal. And so to try to stop our military from getting these supplies, this food, if you'll take the illustration to a point, this bread of life to people, the enemy was not dropping flak, but the enemy was just dropping pieces of aluminum foil down to disrupt the radio signal. Am I making sense to the military people? Because if they could disrupt it, then the plane could veer off track and they would shoot it down. Now here's the point. It doesn't take much for us to lose our bearings and to get off track. You see, most of us will not be defeated by some big thing in our life. It will be the accumulation of hundreds of little distractions that break the communication between us and our Heavenly Father.
that keep us from going on the straight and narrow and we begin to wander off to the wide path and we end up getting wounded and shot down and bringing shame to the name of Jesus Christ. God has given us a clear signal, but he's given us a very narrow path to fly on. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about this path is it's Jesus only. And you can't separate Jesus the Son from God the Father. And you can't separate the Holy Spirit from God the Son. And you cannot say that this Bible is what I want it to be. This Bible is what God says it is. And as long as we stay on that path, we'll get the word, the bread, the food to the people that need to hear it, that are starving and dying for an army of believers to go out and to give them some good news.